Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of Challenging Education from Cognita. I'm Simon Camby, the Group Education Director. And I'm Beth Kerr, the Group Wellbeing Director at Cognita. Thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. Over the past few weeks, we have seen protests across the globe in support of Black Lives Matter. These were sparked by the brutal death of George Floyd. The protests have brought media, public and government focus firmly back to the issue of race and diversity in all aspects of life. It's also brought to the forefront the question of how the black experience features in the curriculum and how children are taught about race and diversity. So, as educators, how do we take this forward? Today we're speaking with two colleagues, both educational leaders, who will share their experience and their views on the implications of Black Lives Matter for education and also share what's happening in their own schools. We'll be discussing how schools can respond to these issues responsibly and in a meaningful way for students. And we'll be hearing about some of the conversations they've had with students about race, as well as the tools and resources they've found to help. Our first guest, Tushi Gorasia, has been an educator for over 26 years and has a continuing passion for extending the love of learning, safeguarding staff and students, as well as promoting equality and diversity as a role model. She has taught at independent, state and international schools across key stages from years one to eight. She's lived and worked in Hong Kong, New York and Singapore. Tushi is currently the head at Hendon Prep School, where she's also the mental health champion and a Stonewall champion. Our second guest is Siobhan McGrath. Siobhan is the executive principal of Southbank International School in London. Siobhan has a strong background in international education, having taught for over 25 years in New Zealand and the UK. She's taught all ages from age 5 to 18 and is active in teacher training alongside some professional passions linked to assessment and professional development. Thank you both so much for joining us. Now, it's really obvious that the events of recent weeks have gripped people globally. The killing of George Floyd has sparked deep feeling across the globe. Black Lives Matter is a unifying cry, and we have to find a way to translate the collective sense of outrage into really meaningful and ultimately, hopefully, positive action. So it would be great if we could just start by understanding a little bit more about what the impact has been in your own school community. Tushi, I wonder if we could come to you first. What have the events prompted in your own community? What's happened as a result? Hi, Simon. Hi, Beth. It's really great to be here. So for us, George Floyd's murder in the US actually collided with some of the BAME race issues closer to home. It came at a time where we were still in lockdown and learning about the disproportionate impact of coronavirus on the Black, Asian, minority ethnic community whilst planning the phased reopening of schools. And so this was a naturally anxious time for a number of staff. As head of school and somebody who was personally trying to navigate the host of emotions, I felt that it was important to reach out to staff in the first instance to assure them that they were not alone, to offer guidance, validation, support, and to address what was going on. Following that, we had a mix of students returning in the days following George Floyd's murder, and we still have students at home. So it's essential to support 
our children through the psychological returning to this new normal whilst also not shying away from any of the conversations related to some of the violent images that the children were seeing on TV. So these images, as you know, over the weeks have moved from George Floyd's murder into the anti-racist protests, then added to that far right-wing protests. And I think it's important that we've allowed space in the curriculum for children to be able to express concerns, to express worries, and as well as trying to equip teachers with how to deal with some of the questions that children are posing. It's also important, I feel, to reassure parents that it's okay to talk to our children in age-appropriate ways about equality, about current events and all the issues that this has raised. And I'm fortunate to have a very diverse and global community at Hendon. But of course, addressing the, the issue of race is not just a North London issue. If anything, it's imperative for all school leaders to make sure that we've got race and diversity on the agenda. The children in your school are aged 11 and under. So just help us understand a little bit about what types of concerns did your children raise? So the children wanted to talk about why things were happening. Some of the children had not been exposed to protesting or to any of the images that they'd seen on TV. And so we talked about exposure to age-appropriate material. So watching Newsround, for example, where the issues were addressed in more child-relatable ways. And did you find that through using resources like that with the children, that they were able to start to internalise it and have a greater degree of understanding? Yes, absolutely. I think being able to direct students to age-appropriate websites and TV material that they can watch, social media, is actually very useful for parents and students alike. You mentioned earlier that some of your parents were anxious. Just help me understand a little bit more about the type of information that you provided for parents. We have a very multicultural parental cohort. We have a very multicultural community. And particularly for some of our parents from that BAME community, it was just very important to acknowledge the level of anxiety for them sending their children back to school and having numerous phone calls with a parent to reassure them of the measures and steps we were taking. Now, Siobhan, turning to you, it'd be great to hear about your experience at Southbank. Hi, everybody. Southbank has three campuses, two primaries that go from three to 11 and a secondary campus in central London. We are an international school and we host students from over 80 different countries and nationalities. Most of our students have mixed heritage and mixed backgrounds. We also have staff who have, bit like Tushy, taught all over the world and have uh, experienced different cultures. And it's an IB school, so International Baccalaureate. And part of the IB requires that you 
teach uh, a global view and international mindedness. So it would be easy to perhaps be complacent and to assume that a school with a, a very heavy focus on international mindedness would have some setup that is perhaps easier for other schools following a different curriculum. I was interested listening to Tushy because the first thing that happened in my school was an email from a parent, and this is very, very early on, just after the events in America started. An email from an American parent came to me saying, we're very interested and concerned about what's happening in the States, and can we ask what the school is going to do with children to teach them about what's going on in these events. And that was a trigger for me to go to staff and say, I've had this parent email come in and what are we doing? And the teachers responded saying, we've already started talking about it with the kids online. Beyond that, staff immediately went into overdrive and started sharing resources, books, videos, all sorts of things that teachers across the board could use. So the action from teachers was pretty prompt. The second interesting thing that happened within a couple of days was I found out that three of our families, who happened to all be American, had taken their very young children to the protests in London, which I found heartening and very encouraging. They basically took their children as a way of teaching them about the issues and to put a a marker in the sand about where they stood. So that was a lot to reflect on straight away about how strongly our parent community felt about this as an issue and took it as an opportunity to begin conversations with their children and within their family set up. You mentioned that you've got students at Southbank up to the age of 18. What has the response been with some of your older students? They're very action-based. So you've probably noticed that a lot of the protesters are teenagers and young people, which is intensely satisfying. And it is the young people who are driving the action rather than allowing this to revert into a protest and a bit of tokenism. Within 10 days of the events commencing in America, our school received five emails from ex-students, many of whom who had left South Bank, graduated and gone to American universities. And they asked that we look at the curriculum and look at the ways that we could provide an, an education that dug a lot deeper about colonial history about American history, and it was very, very action-based. Within our senior school, we had a group of students who began setting up Google Meets to talk about what was going on and to look at what they could actively do to enact some change in the school and to support each other and to be active in their protests, making sure that their views were being heard. 
So it sounds like your students immediately responded with a sense of action and wanting to do something now. But you mentioned that you had had the letters from students that had previously left South Bank. What more do you want to do going forward in relation to this? Because it's great to have that short term action, but presumably some of these things require much greater insight and reflection. So what what would you like to see going forward? At my campus, which is a primary one, we had been lucky because for two years we ran a professional learning community on international mindedness. In the first year, it was very discussion-based and the staff said, we want to continue, we haven't finished. And I said, that's all very well, but you can't just keep talking. You have to prove to me that your words are going to have some tangible change with how children are taught and what they learn. And what our staff did was look intensely over a year at our curriculum and at the literature that we use, at the history that's being taught, at the language that we use, how English even is taught to English as a second language learners. And they dug very, very deep and they had to face up sometimes to some difficult biases within even the professional learning community that they'd set up. So one of our campuses, in fact, all of our campuses were in probably quite a good place, but it is unfinished business. It really is. It's a a school's duty to look exactly at what is taught as part of the curriculum and to go deep and to face up to potential unconscious bias that teachers have. I think teachers on the whole are comfortable generally with looking at curriculum and they're used to having to revise curriculums. But this is a a different level and it needs a very, very deep scrutiny and it has to start from having conversations with your staff. So that's the curriculum and education side of it. But we have black staff and we needed to listen to their voices and we needed to hear what they had said and what they were saying about their experience living in the UK and the things that they'd had to cope with in the past and their current experiences for working in our school. And it's absolutely our duty to listen and to listen very carefully to what they say. And I guess for me, the easier bit is the gathering of resources. That's not difficult. And then asking and encouraging staff to use it, but also to deeply understand the spirit in which those resources are intended to truly help children understand diversity and equity is really, really important. And it cannot be a one-off conversation. It can't be one staff meeting. It's got to be ongoing and it has to be there forever. In the same way, it had to be with addressing gender inequality. Uh, It's got to be a continued conversation. Tushi, coming back to you, one of the things that I personally am really keen on is is hearing about other people's lived experience, because I think there's a real danger that we can all suddenly decide very quickly that we know what the issues are. And my learning and my view is that we can only have some sense of the issues by listening and learning from others. I wonder if you'd be kind enough just to share with us a little bit about your own lived experience and maybe just thinking what have the recent incidents triggered for you? Simon, I I don't say this lightly, but recent events have almost broken me and released a host of emotions that I've needed to process 
I'm an Asian woman from first generation immigrants. I was raised in the 1970s when racism was overt. As a little girl growing up in London, I was called racist names. I had monkey chants in the streets when I was going to the shop with my little brother. We often had NF signs as threats on our gatepost. And for those of you that don't know what that is, that's the National Front. So those were very overt, racist ways in which we grew up. And then there was always the, the stairs when, you know, my dad took me to learn how to swim, a completely natural thing for a father to do with with their child. But as a little girl, my dad always told me that I'd have to work twice as hard, be twice as good to get half as far. And in some ways, that's right. But he also said that we had to work hard. We had to be honest and be authentic and never give up. As I grew older, racism at college wasn't so overt. It had become more covert. It was the beginning of positive discrimination and political correctness. And throughout that period of time, I didn't want anyone to do me any favours. I wanted to achieve on merit, not be a tick box for anybody. And becoming a teacher had always been my dream. I'm fortunate I've worked across the globe and I really get to live my dream as, as a teacher. But the journey's not always been easy and, and it doesn't continue to necessarily be any easier. I've not been shortlisted for jobs that I'm overqualified to do. I've been told that I don't fit the look of a school or an area there are ongoing ways in which society will tell me that I'm not allegedly good enough. The flip side of that is, as I become more successful, racism isn't unique to one community. So as I become successful, I also have to tolerate racist names from my own community, you know, being called a coconut or a bounty bar. And it makes you realize that racism, our attitudes, it's a complete mindset that has to be addressed. And, and like you say, we all have to look inwards. George Floyd's murder and his dying words, I can't breathe, actually triggered a whole range of emotions that, that I personally had suppressed. Those 50 years of slights of being ignored or passed over, the snide comments. You have been hugely supportive during recent years with our work with Stonewall, for example, um, and being a Stonewall champion. How can we link these parts together? Because listening to you, I am assuming that your drive to be involved in that is driven just by deeper views around diversity. Absolutely. I have always felt that it is the responsibility of us as educators to be allies and that word is being used now in terms of race. It was used a few years ago in terms of being supportive of LGBTQ sensitivities and it's really important. This is about a mindset 
it's about acknowledging that equality is not just about race, but about gender and disability. And I know some people might feel that it would be a watering down by calling it equality, but it isn't to me. To me, it's all about that intersection of society and the concept of allyship, where we are as educators really promoting an understanding and a change of mindset to incorporate equality and equity for all of us. If a young person in one of our schools was listening to this and they felt the same outrage and anger that you described to us, what would your advice be to them? My advice to them would be to educate yourself, equip yourself with knowledge and understanding and not allow anyone to throw you off track from what you and your authentic self knows is the right thing to do. Education, of course, knowledge is is key. And to express that anger and frustration in a way that you can bring people with you. That's great, Tushy. Thank you so much. Beth, over to you. Wow, I, I've, I've learned so much there, Tushy. And, and actually listening to you and, and following the events of past few weeks, what has really highlighted to me is that there is actually a difference, a real difference between not being racist and proactively challenging racism. And so with that in mind, what do you think is the responsibility of schools in responding to the Black Lives Matter movement? Siobhan, you started talking about unconscious biases. So so perhaps we'll start with, with you. I think it absolutely comes back to leadership. It really does. It comes from the very, very top and the message that a good leader sends out to their community And within leadership, for me, I think one of the most critical things that is incredibly important starts with recruitment, the types of questions that you ask and making sure that you really do hunt down your own bias with recruitment. And listening to Tushi, I found emotional and made me teary listening to her speak because it really resonates with me that she's being judged already just by her name alone and people being frightened from even shortlisting her because they they don't understand the context of her name and where she comes from. For me, starting with recruitment and opening that out is the biggest single thing that a school leader can do. And if you send a message to your staff and to your parents and therefore to your children by employing a more diverse range of people, then that helps build role models So it's about leaders having the courage to ask difficult questions of themselves and also to not shy away from having difficult conversations with staff as well. And as challenging as it is for white people to face up to their own bias, they are going to have to do that. Good leadership will come up with ways for that to happen in a a way that's productive and positive and sees the institution, whether it's the school or otherwise, move on in, in a good direction. 
I do sense a real passion about things wanting to change, people wanting things to be different, uh, fundamentally different, not just on a surface level. But what do you think some of the main challenges for educators are when it comes to starting conversations about Black Lives Matter? Siobhan, let's start with you and then we'll we'll move to Tushy. I think the, the challenges are that we're about to go into summer holidays and I think what would worry me a little bit is that people are going to somehow lump the horrors of COVID and school closure in with Black Lives Matter and things have come out of it. And then there'll be summer, people will hopefully go on holiday and then come back to school and we will all move on and it won't come up again. I think that's a a practical thing that puts the ongoing conversations at risk. The other challenges I would say are that We've got to face up to tokenism and the risks that come from that. And you heard me speak before about recruitment. Tokenism would be having one question that relates to diversity and inclusion. The person answers it well, but deep down, they don't really believe what they're saying or they don't understand what they're saying. So to me, the tokenism side of it is is definitely a risk. And that's why I think both Tushi and I believe that this has to be an ongoing conversation. You can also run the risk of oversaturation. So I think, again, it it requires careful thinking and making sure that the teachers are very, very secure about what they're delivering in the classroom and that the leadership is aware of what's going on and picking up on, on any gaps. And Tushi, what about you? What, what are some of the main challenges for educators that, that you can foresee? Well, I think that for many teachers, they can find it challenging. They don't want to offend. They don't want to say something that might be misconstrued. But in the same way that we educate ourselves and have Stonewall training around addressing those sensitivities, I think we have to do exactly the same to overcome our anxieties about addressing colour. And there is a wealth of super age appropriate materials that we can all tap into that can support teachers and parents and find ways that we can keep the conversation going. I agree with Siobhan, you don't want to oversaturate. You want this to eventually become part of our being, our mindset. And it's just about making sure that there isn't a single school that feels, oh, this issue doesn't impact us. It actually impacts every school, regardless of where you're based. You know, the content of of our character, you know, to take a, a piece of Martin Luther King, it's understanding is key. The acceptance is key. And the idea that we as individuals and as a collective, we continue to educate ourselves. Knowledge is power. Thank you so much to both of you. Um, Really great reflections. And, And in many ways, the current context is giving us all the opportunity to really deeply question our own beliefs and our own practice in schools. And I really like the phrase that Tushy used about equity for all. And for me, that is what we're trying to get to. It is about equity, not just equality, but equity. This is a huge issue and one that we will return to because there is so much more for us all to learn here. I've certainly been reflecting over 
over recent weeks and again today just listening to both of my colleagues and I've had four thoughts really about this which I would just like to share with you. I think the first one for me is that my own view is that we can never really truly know the lived experience of another person but certainly one of the things that I'm taking time to do is to listen and to learn in order to deepen my own understanding and empathy and try to see things through other people's lens. Secondly, I think there's a real need for us all to take personal accountability here. I think too often, especially in organisations, the theme of diversity can be somebody else's responsibility, whereas actually I think it's everybody's responsibility. No single person is responsible for this. We all have to take collective action. Thirdly, I think Siobhan mentioned this earlier, we can talk and talking is really important and it's especially important to deal with the hurt that comes out of this. But we also need to take action and we need to make changes and we have to support each other in doing that. And then finally, there is clearly outright anger in many situations. And that's absolutely right, because it's evoked by deep hurt. But my view is that we really need to respond with empathy and kindness, as this will ultimately enable us to find the right way to move forward and deal with this in a really positive and proactive way. So as I said, look, there's so much that we can unpick here. But thank you so much to Siobhan and Tushi. We really appreciate you joining us. As always, if you found this episode interesting, please do give our podcast a review and share your views with us on social media. You can do this by tweeting us at Cognita Schools and including the hashtag CognitaWay. And if you know someone who might be interested in the things that we discussed today, please do share our podcast with them. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks. Until then, from Beth and myself, please stay safe, stay well and see you next time. Goodbye.